The ancient Chinese believed that the heart was the center of human cognition, and therefore the heart and the mind are one. Wellness Continuing offers spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. At wellnesscontinuing.com, you'll find meditation music with binaural beats, a podcast all about consciousness in the afterlife, blog posts, and a new YouTube series called Dreamtime Wisdom with Catherine Lundin, and much more. Sign up for the Wellness Continuing newsletter and stay updated about new offerings and resources. Visit wellnesscontinuing.com. Wellness Continuing. Elevate your heart-mind. Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Jim Bruton has led a life of childhood dreams. As a little boy, he fantasized about flying a World War I aircraft, inventing science fiction gadgets, and traveling the world filming animals and people along the way. Today, he has an Emmy for his work on National Geographic Television, and he invented the satellite video phone, which disrupted how television news can be produced from remote and extreme places where live video was impossible before. He further refined his system to include uses in telemedicine, becoming a guest lecturer at Yale University School of Medicine, integrating biometrics destined for the International Space Station, and then testing them two years in a row with climbers at Mount Everest. Jim's adventures have taken him to all seven continents, the Titanic, the North Pole, and many war zones. But his long-lasting desire since birth was to know God. Today, Jim talks about his book, The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime, about his near-death experience, the plane crash leading up to it, and his changes in perspectives that followed. So welcome, Jim. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Hi, Tanya. It's great to be here today. Uh, look forward to seeing you today and sharing with you and your listeners. Thank you. So you're the author of a book called The In-Between, The Trip of a Lifetime that discusses your near-death experience. Now, your life before your NDE, mm-hmm. I find it's a book in itself. So mm-hmm. why don't you give us a synopsis of what your life was like before? Sure. I think the the cocktail napkin version to kick it off would be um, my life is really one of uh, realizing my childhood dreams. You know, uh, I think a lot of little boys growing up in the '60s probably were looking at popular mechanics, either little projects they could work on with their dads or their friends in their garage or backyard. Um, and I was looking through it, saying, "Okay, when when are we getting the flying saucer? When are we going to the moon as tourists? When are we flying the jetpack?" <laughs> So I think that that love of science fiction, if you will, uh, in which, you know, everything was going to be possible. We had this utopia because remember, in the 60s, we were working toward getting to the moon. So, uh, you know, it was easy for NASA to be in the minds of little boys and it's a possible future. So for me, I I realized, yeah, I want to invent something. I, I definitely want to invent something that's futuristic. I want to be part of this cool new future. So for me, that um you know, took the form of, like I said, just watching a lot of science fiction. And 
that kind of backs into another interest I had as a child. I would sit there and watch every Sunday night a program called Wild Kingdom. It was a natural history program. The two hosts would travel all over the world, uh, you know, engaged in various types of animal conservation or wildlife natural history conservation projects. And so there was there was always, uh, you know, some getting their hands dirty of jumping out of the Land Rover to help with uh, darting animals, perhaps, and relocating them or uh, redesigning migration paths or in other ways, you know, in many ways all over the world, just helping the conservation efforts of various wildlife projects. So I remember sitting there thinking, how do I do that for a living? So if you fast forward a few years, you know, I, I was living in Africa in a country called Namibia that means the big nothing, and it really is, with only two people per square mile. Wow. It's the world's oldest desert, the Namib, with the world's tallest sand dunes right at the coast. It was just beautiful. And so, you know, I was making wildlife films there, and uh, one day that led to winning an Emmy for my work with National Geographic Television, another gold standard of the 60s and 70s, right? I mean, the one magazine people just don't seem to throw away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they're in your attic, they yeah. push you out of your house, <laughs> but you're not throwing them away because the photography is so outstanding and the writing was very good as well. So, you know, to, to win a, a really great award for work with such an organization, was again the realization of a childhood dream and it was doing that it was filming a sunset uh, on top of a sand dune again 300 miles from anyone uh, when a disney film crew came up scouting a location for a film and they pulled out a bunch of cases unfolded a nickelized polyester meaning a sort of a metalized fabric satellite dish and then pulled out a handset telephone handset and they were talking to their studios back in LA. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, <laughs> you know, it would take me six weeks to get a response to a letter if I could get someone to take it to town and put it in the mail and send it. And like I said, wait and then receive a response. And they have this instant communication. So I'm sure for yourself and for many people who are engaged in uh, digital media in one way or another, we're always looking for a new way to tell a story, a new a way to leverage uh, a technology perhaps in a way that's not been leveraged before. So for me, that question was, has anyone ever pushed video over that satellite phone? And they said, we don't know. I said, I'm going to figure out how to do it. And I was, and I did, and I was the first. And that led to a lot more adventure and a lot more travel. Uh, I field produced the Titanic expedition for Discovery Channel. I retraced the journey of the Magi uh, through Afghanistan. Uh, Iran, Jordan, Israel, uh, for Microsoft, going live with my system that I built uh, on Christmas Eve from Bethlehem, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, and going to like a Zoroastrian temple fortress that was named by Marco Polo in his adventures, and that's where two of the Magi were supposed to have come from. It was really cool to go there and walk through this, and it's not like it's visited by many people. It was a fairly virgin site archaeologically. Wow. So just one adventure after another, and one day I even modified it for use in telemedicine, where I became a lecturer at uh, Yale University School of Medicine, integrating some really cool biometrics that were destined for the space station. So again, that kind of address that love for science fiction. And then um, as the dot-com bubble burst, if you will, or subsided 
a bit. Uh, the only people left with any money and interest to hire me and my gear, which was like a TV truck and a backpack, right, to, to travel around and report stories for them, were the major news networks. So I, I went from sharing the most beautiful places in the world to some of the worst. And uh, I did work for everyone, you know, independently, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS. Now, eventually, as far as something a little longer term, uh, I went over with NBC News. And, you know, they were in New York. I'm in Connecticut. Wasn't that far a drive. And three months later, 9-11 happened. <laughs> so I guess it was like perfect timing to uh, leverage this technology because all of a sudden we had people in a lot of different places. You know, it was, we, we had people in North Africa because we were going to start bombing the snot out of every training, training, uh, terrorist training camp we could there. And then um, we also had people in Eastern Europe, obviously Afghanistan, and that's where I went. I was in North Africa for a little while. Then I went to uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, drove into Afghanistan where I was embedded. Um, and we were also you know, working with the Northern Alliance a bit that were, that were a local team of team group, tribe of people uh, fighting the Taliban. So the whole idea is we were getting very focused in terms of a response to the attack on the Twin Towers. And then I stayed there for a few months, came home, then went off to Southeast Asia where we were chasing Abu Sayyaf terrorists with the special forces there. And then uh, eventually I was embedded with the Marines during the Iraqi um, operation in 2003. And somewhere in here, I uh, met a widow with three babies and decided it seemed like maybe a good idea to not do work in war zones anymore and have these kids lose another father figure. So I transferred all my media technology skills over to corporate life, managing the business programming unit for Pfizer then I was a technical director at the UN for UNICEF. Then I was the head of voice and video telecommunications for Ernst & Young, the third largest uh, accounting firm in the world. And so it was, it was kind of nice to be able to translate this to, like I said, something where you're not getting shot at every day. Sure. And it was in that time I was able to realize another childhood dream. Being in one place now, um, I could build some really old style aircraft I was interested in because I am a pilot. Um, and so I built a World War I fighter reproduction followed by a 1933 plane that kind of looked like a, something out of a Disney cartoon called a Flying Fleet. And it was in flying that aircraft that I uh, lost my engine on the second test flight, couldn't make it back to my airfield because being an old vintage aircraft, it didn't have quite the glide ratio that the more modern aircraft had came down more vertically. So I aimed for a pond at a nearby Boy Scout camp, missed the pond, crashed into a whole bunch of tree trunks and the equivalent of a soapbox derby car at 70 miles an hour. And that kind of brings us up to where my near-death experience starts. <laughs> Like I said, that first part of your life is a, is a book in itself. So that's quite incredible. But then you decided that you wanted to settle down and have more stability in life. And that's what led you on that path to building the plane. And then, like you just said, that's the segue into the near-death experience. So what happened? 
on the day of your near-death experience? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, my plane, you know, like I said, it was, it was this little totally built of wood airplane. And when I finished crashing, you know, hitting all these tree trunks at 70 miles an hour, all of the plane in front of me and beside me was turned into matchsticks. I don't know how I didn't wind up eating the engine, which was right in front of my face. But uh, the only part of the plane left intact was that which was behind me to which I was still seatbelted. Uh, luckily, there was a, a man fishing nearby in this park. Why? Because in October in 2016, uh, at that time of year, it was closed. It was peaceful <laughs> until a guy crashes his plane next to you. So he came over and luckily he had his cell phone on him because normally he didn't carry it with him. And he called 911. He kept me propped up to breathe um, because I had ruptured both lungs. I had broken all my ribs. Uh, a lot of the skin on my lower jaw was hanging down, not the jaw itself, but the skin, but it would have been very hard to make words without a lower lip. And uh, I also had a hole in my lower back. My right leg had multiple fractures, uh, kind of like a pretzel. And so he was able to, without you know, freaking out, because he was also a retired police officer. So he'd seen trauma, maybe like in you know, car crashes and things like that. So he didn't. I have to interject. What are the odds, is all I have to say, of someone being present and a former police officer mm -hmm. trained in trauma? Like Exactly. I don't know. Synchronous, synchronous. <laughs> it's the only Anyways. person I needed and it's the only person I got. So that it worked out fine. His name was Greg Gubatosi and uh, we stayed in, we've stayed in loose touch ever since. In fact, I, oh. the first time I went back out to the crash site a few years later, just to kind of say, okay, let's, let's just visit this place again. I actually called him up and said, Hey, this is Jim, I'm out at my crash site. Where and then I showed him a video. I said, "Where exactly?" He goes, "Oh yeah, go to the left about thirty feet." And I did, and eventually I found like one tiny uh, stick, if you will, piece of wood from my airplane in the ground there. They had done an incredible job of cleaning it up. But anyway, back to the present. Uh, the helicopter flew in. You know, let's say thirty minutes later. I'm not quite sure how long it was, but you know, just sort of uh, in my recollection of asking the, of those events that day, uh, they. It wasn't very hard to pull me out of what remained of the aircraft because so much of it was already disintegrated. And they uh, put me onto the helicopter. They flew me up to the Hartford, Connecticut uh, Trauma Center. And my understanding, again, from what people were telling me later, because I have no memory at all of this, uh, was that a trauma team was on standby waiting for me. And when I landed, they immediately took me right into um, emergency care and began working on me. When my family got up there a little while later, they, um, you know, found me in a breathing machine. I was intubated and had all kinds of tubing coming in and going out of me. I'd already escaped from one set of restraints and they put me into a, a bigger set. And uh, the recommendation was to put me into a medically induced coma because I was to have multiple eight hour operations over the next week. And some of them only had a 2% chance of success. And they said they could lose me at any time. So best just to, you know, make life easy for everybody here. You know, so I could be out of it and heal and not be a bother to them. And they could just, you know, focus on the work at hand. So that's what they did. And, you know, without any sure way of saying this is how it went down, just sort of using some basic logic, I just say that 
you know, as they put me into a coma here, that's when my near-death experience started. And I'll preface it right away by saying my near-death experience is very different from most of those we hear about or read about you know, in terms of going through a tunnel or seeing deceased loved ones, uh, having a, a life review, you know, a la Christmas Carol, <laughs> like with Scrooge seeing all the ways he'd treated people before. And then, you know, like sort of getting the big grand message from an angelic being and then being sent back. Mine was very different. Um, the way I would characterize it is that there, there was absolutely no tunnel. It was more like it was teleported, boom, just like that. Uh, and again, I, I also want to preface this, that when I came out of my coma later, about a week later, that for another week, I would say my mind still really wasn't functioning properly. I have no memory of that time either. So bookending this super conscious event are two periods of amnesia. Because when I went, finally got my laptop in the hospital while I was recuperating and looked back in my email, it was two days before my crash that I remember that last email. And coming back and waking up out of this coma and this near-death experience, I'd say it was at least another week before my mind started to function and I remembered I had this experience at all. But between those periods of amnesia is this near-death experience, which I remember very clearly. So I find, I just find that to be interesting, but mm -hmm. the experience itself, it's like I teleported onto a terrace of a very tall building in a basically destroyed city. As I basically just poof, here I am. As I looked out at the skyline, it was absolute wreckage and destruction. And I've characterized it by saying, you know, imagine, uh, New York or Los Angeles, or in your case, maybe Toronto, um, hundreds or maybe a thousand years after a nuclear blast or a meteor strike or, you know, some type of cataclysm that just destroyed the city and, and everyone in it. And as I looked out at the city, um, I didn't have any emotional reaction to any of this. You know, just, you just look and you accept what you see and you just take it in. No judgment no fear, no emotion. And as I did, I also noticed above me were these huge, dark clouds, like a, the mother of all storms was just getting ready to break loose. And then as I'm taking it all in, this wave of nausea went through me and like my gut. And I grabbed my gut and I said, God, I don't, I don't think I can stand this. And as I did that, I heard the sound off to my left and I looked and, and like this terrace was very large, right? And as I look over there, I see a, like an egg shaped sculpture made out of open lattice work. That was, I would say it was like four stories high. And so it's, you know, about 50 to you know, 16 meters, 50 feet high, something like that. And I could see movement within that open lattice work. And that's where the sound came from. It was like the light clacking of gears. So I made my way over to it and I looked through that open lattice work. And what I saw were a freely suspended in the air were a special type of gear called a sector gear. When we think of a gear, you think of a little wheel with teeth all the way around it. Uh, in this case, a sector kind of means like a section of that gear. It's like a pie slice, if you will. And uh, you usually see them in clock-like mechanisms. You see them in transmissions. They're meant to go back and forth and just, you know, have gears for that portion that, of their uh, motion. So it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then it may repeat. 
And that's significant because these gears, as I looked at them, some were very much in focus and some were not. They were more like ghost-like or transparent even. And But if I looked at them, a video feed played in my head of what they represented. And I realized these are events in my future because maybe I look older or maybe I know it's dealing with events that haven't happened yet. Um, and I, that was fascinating in and of itself, you know, like, okay, these are events in my future. And at some point I, because like I said, some were ghost-like and some were, were not. Um, I remember, you know, I was like, what, what's going on here? You know, cause I, some were passing through each other as if, you know, it didn't, you know, in a physically impossible manner. And so I, uh, just sort of, you know, took a few steps back, took it all in. And I remember saying, what is this thing? And this disembodied, uh, voice responded in my consciousness saying, you know, this is the future birthing into the now. And like I said, I kind of looked at it and thought this is like a, a multidimensional model of time. And then the voice said, this is the process of becoming. And because the, the gears were, like I said, in <laughs> like varying states or a full range of uh, looking very definite and concrete, if you will, and some were like fog, I reached my hand in to see if I could touch them. And when I did, this one gear brushed by my hand. And when it did, uh, I suddenly felt another wave of pain and reflexively, I, I grabbed it and pulled it out through the uh, opening in the lattice wall and just kind of threw it away. And as I did, the whole machine responded by spinning all the remaining gears around, recalibrating you know, for the loss of one, uh, that clacking sound, bringing in a new configuration, if you will. And I remember saying, what's happening now? And again, this is, I guess you could say it's a telepathic, though we could talk about the differences of communication. I, I I would say it was with thought, but I don't know if I would call it telepathy. Um, but the response was, you know, each gear was the probability of a thought, word, or action in my future. And my destiny was resetting itself around what I had removed. And I remember asking, you know, well, how did I know I could do that, pull that gear out? And and this place, you know, this thing just said, why else are you here? And I said, I don't know. I don't have any idea. I don't even know where I am, what this place is. And it said, you are in the in-between. And I said, in-between what? And it said everything, the impossible now between the past and the future. And I said, that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and, it, and it said, it's impossible in its short duration. Yet here you are standing inside the eternity of a single moment. And then it said, do you remember the world in which your body belongs? And I can remember standing there blankly trying to remember and I said, I have no idea. I had no no idea at all. If somebody had said, if you stay here longer, you can't go back, I'd say, go back where? To your family. What family? What is a family? I was that depersonalized. I was that much in the moment. And the voice said, then you see the truth and how the past is dust. So I guess if you're really saying <laughs> right now is the only thing there is, that that makes perfect sense. And I said, okay, so why do some of these gears, these futures, that I touch, make me sick and not others. And it said, all choices have unintended consequences, some unfortunate and some not. The pain each brings is your guide. And I said, where are the gears that feel good? And it said, you're not here to feel good. It's not, 
it wasn't like a threat. It was just like, you know, there's work to be done now because what I realized I was being given was an opportunity as I had done with that first gear to reach around and find what gears might be to my spiritual detriment. Those are the ones that cause me pain. And by feeling that pain, remove them. And so obviously if there was a gear in there and it didn't uh, cause me pain, and there was one I saw that of me with happy grandchildren at an amusement park one day, well, obviously I let that gear pass by. I wasn't interested in removing that one. But each time um, I did remove one, you know, they'd all spin around again and then they would come to rest and I would, you know, feel around inside. And sad to say that was the best moral compass I had was the pain itself. And at one point I <laughs> looked around and saw a growing pile of gears. And I said, starting to look like, you know, I don't have a bad future. I have no future at all. Am I going to die sooner from doing all this? And the voice said, your destiny has to fit itself around futures that aren't meant to be. Your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. And I said, I don't know how comforting that is. And it said, well, eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. Let's, fake, let's face it, to, to make a mistake is not necessarily a sin. Bad intentions might be. But it said, you won't know that these choices between what is right or wrong are so until after they pass. Since right and wrong are variables over which you have no control, the answers to what come tomorrow are a waste. Better is understanding the beauty of how things fit and refit together. Basically, I was being told to have faith in the grand design more than, uh, you know, I need to know everything that's going to happen before I dare get out of the bed every day, right? If And think about it. You know, if if we knew some of the karmic debts we have to pay, some of the painful things in life we have to go through, we'd never go do them. We would always be taking the easy way out. Well, I'm glad I didn't talk to that person today. I'm glad I didn't date that person because, you know, we would have gotten married, we would have gotten divorced, and it'd be a really bad deal. Or maybe take that job and wind up hating it. But maybe in going through all these things, we arrive at a better place, if not in terms of the outward and manifest opportunity, in terms of the inner state of ourselves, in terms of learning. How else would you learn patience? How else might you learn hmm, to love your enemies. And in the end of the day, how about loving yourself for the choices you made as you went through these things? So you'd say, you know, I, I did these things with the best of intentions and I did my best. And even though I made mistakes, I don't think many people could fault me. And you know what? Even if you made some bad choices, it's still important to love yourself. So I am. And you, Go ahead. you talked about that as well. Um, uh, people had asked you, did you have an inkling about the day of your crash? <laughs> yeah, that was a good and, one. Right? Yeah. It was good. Uh, it was a woman who was vice president of the American Psychical Association in New York. William James, you know, the famous psychologist in the late 1800s, founded, I want to say it's like 1888 or 78, something like that. And I was telling the story to her. And she asked me, she said, did you have a bad premonition on the day of your crash? I said, well, coming from you, that's the perfect question. And I said, you know, as you asked me that question, I feel moved by my experience to answer this way. Forget premonition. Imagine you had full foreknowledge of what was going to happen, the crash and all the you know, pain and, of course, the near-death experience. I said, would I have had the guts to get into the cockpit anyway? 
to me, that's the bigger question. Because if God or whatever you want to call it at that point says, I want to bring you over for a little one-on-one time, on one side, we can say, what price is too great to pay for that opportunity? And on the other side, we can say, do you think you're really going to get to say no? So I would leave it there. But, but one of the questions I asked, and this is where some of the conversation, I'd say, became more profound, certainly from, <laughs> from what was being given than what was being <laughs> transmitted. I said, you know, what, what's lacking in my understanding here? And it said, what is clearly before you? Grace. No one deserves salvation. It can only be given by grace. It's your birthright, but it must be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. And that's what this whole selection process was about in terms of removing these painful, bad choices in my future, stacking the deck, if you will, so that the remaining choices are better ones, uh, ones that will less likely take me off the path of my own spiritual evolution. And I said, um, you know, this fixing my future is painful. I feel ashamed I'm not doing it with some better moral compass, you know, like a, a mantra or, a, you know, imagining a guru or something like that. I said, I'm only guided by pain. I don't even know where or when these futures happen. And I said, where or when are not important, you know, removing your enthusiasm to further chain yourself to the world isn't as painful as the crushing weight of those chains once forged around you. And we know. In some cases, those chains are made of iron, and in some cases, they're made of gold. But they're chains all the same. I said, you know, it's like this place was made so I can do one thing and one thing only, with no chance to screw it up. And it said, if those who make, it said, if those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. You can't change the past but you can make better choices in the future. This is the nature of atonement, that everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I'm gentle with you. And I said, what's gentle about all this? You know, thinking about all this nausea I'd been feeling, you know, over and over and over in order to make these choices of what to remove. And I said, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. And with that, I looked up into that, you know, stone gray sky and out across that dead and abandoned city. And then I looked back to the egg and I put my hand up on it and I said, I think I can live with this now. And to the best of my recollection with that, I then returned and I guess woke up here. That's my NDE. That's incredible. Um, There's so many layers here to unpack. So one thing is the trauma. How did the physical trauma, I mean, impact you? That's the weird thing. So I've given you an overview of the injuries I sustained, right? And, you know, ruptured both lungs. And when I asked the guy, Greg, the the man who saved me, when I asked him, I said, you know, what was it like? He said, I said something like, I asked a question about my breathing and he said, you weren't really breathing because you couldn't because your lungs were ruptured. He said you were more just continually gasping and you were foaming all this blood, which, you know, is a sign of damage down there. So the weird thing was, I don't know if it had to do with the duration. Like, think about it. I, I had these injuries. And so for a week I was in a coma, right? And then, as I said before, a week after that, 
I don't have any memory. So let's say no earlier than two weeks after my crash, that's when I sort of started coming to. I don't remember having any pain or discomfort whatsoever. Now, I do know they had me loaded up on some serious painkillers. Uh, and, I, and I don't know what, you know, the after effects of anesthesia were like in this case, if they were lasting in some way or, you know, the coma inducing drugs as well. So it's kind of hard to say, but I will say that due to the incredible care I got, and again, this is where you just cannot say enough good about highly trained medical teams. And in my case up there at Hartford. So I'm saying this kind of hoping that one of them will watch this one day. And I do have an interesting synchronicity story about that. I could share with you later. Um, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't in that big of pain. I will say this though. I woke up and I, uh, my leg was in a cage, uh, because they, you know, were, the cage was meant to hold it in the right position so that it would heal, you know, in the correct alignment and heal properly. And, uh, but, but lungs wise, they, they would give me like lung capacity tests, like, you know, breathing in a tube and seeing if I could make a ball go up a tube and stuff like that. And so I guess every day I was meant to be doing exercises perhaps, um, uh, as well as measurements of increasing lung capacity. Uh, and, and then eventually over time when my leg was ready, uh, they, you know, like, I guess brought a walker in and, and the whole idea was just just do nothing more than stand up and stand in place obviously you know weight is on my good leg my left leg and then just see basically how long I stand and you know what was crazy after i'd say after three or four weeks of being there <clears throat> the first time i stood i could only stand for like 30 maybe 45 seconds and I started breathing hard and I was getting out of breath. It was amazing just standing there. So that was enough for the day. So every day we, we pushed to, you know, stand there a little longer, a little longer, a little longer, and then start to take some baby steps. So I would say the road to recovery took a little while, but even so I was home seven weeks later, seven weeks after my crash at the very end of November. That's when I went home. And I had a walk out of wheelchair, you know, I kind of butt hop up the chair, uh, up the stairs <laughs> to the shower where I had a bench I could sit on and shower. But, you know, I was home seven weeks later. Yeah, because a lot of other near-death experiencers talk about <laughs> a somewhat miraculous healing process, but there is still a process to be had. I mean, it just doesn't happen overnight. True. Not that I'm, I've heard. Um, however, the experience, though, trumps... The pain and suffering absolutely so, yeah so here's yeah. the thing i would say even now and it's been you know a little past five years i'd say it was worth it i would absolutely say it was worth it and and there's something i want to add to what you just said and that was about you know the quick healing before my now i've been a vegetarian for years i eat healthily and i you know take try and take care of myself but before my crash, I was taking medication for like cholesterol and high blood pressure. After my crash, I'm normal. I don't take that medication and my diet hasn't changed. So like what happened there? And also my eyesight improved in 2015. The reason I'm looking at you with glasses right now is it's because remember I was saying in the in-between how some of these gears were more in focus and some were kind of out of focus and they were sort of almost like drifting in and out of focus and not focus. 
that's kind of how I see the world right now. I can't really explain it. Uh, so these glasses sort of give me an average in focusedness as things sometimes drift in and out of focus. And, and I, I think, you know, may have to do like almost like quantum probability thing. Things are things that are more in focus or things of more certainty uh, to eventuate and things that are slightly out of focus or things that may be further out in time, or they may be less likely to eventuate. So it's so my best explanation for why that's the case. But at the end of the day, I can drive and I'm safe on the road. <laughs> good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so then with the experience, the take home message, the big one was take care of your relationships. Yeah. Can you unpack that a bit more? Sure. And that's interesting. Yeah. It was how everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. And I would say the talk about layers and unpacking things. It would sound really so simple to just say, well, all that meant was uh, don't take people for granted. Be nice to everybody. Realize that there are a lot of people who do things for you. You'll never know, you know, sort of the Disney version, if you will. But man, it was a lot more than that. It was also, you know, don't take crap from people, but try to not take crap from them in a compassionate way, understanding that if someone's being rude to you, well, you know what? They were probably rude to somebody last week, might be rude to somebody next week. So either it's a moment thing based upon stress they're experiencing at home, or this is just who they are and they're kind of treat everybody this way. But at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with you. So you start, as you start to realize how many relationships are transactional and how if you're not holding up your end of the bargain, um, a lot of these come to a quick and immediate end, or some of them just run out of gas, you start to think about relationships in that bigger picture way in which you actually kind of remove yourself from the relationship to look at the overall process and the overall dynamic of relationships in general. And then you start to realize how, well, let me be blunt, um, with a, and this was a quote off the IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies website at the time, that with an average national divorce rate in the United States of 53%, 53% of people get divorced. So that means the odds are kind of against you, even for normal folks. With NDEers, with people who have near-death experiences, it was like, um, what was it, like 73 or 78%. And so let's say it was 73%. That's basically a 50% increase over an already epidemic rate as far as I'm concerned. So as you talk about relationships, it makes you look at that statistic and wonder what's going on. And then, then you realize, well, it's because you change. You change that much. You may not now have those shared values, those shared hopes and dreams, even the shame prejudices, right? You may not feel about people at general or specifically the same way as you did before, which, you know, sometimes is a, is a unifying bond between people. All kinds of things are. Uh, you may not have the same attitude toward child rearing or toward your, toward your children in general. So those relationships are going to change now. You know, the, the wife or the husband and the kids have something to talk about, and that's you. And so at some point, you will, in, in seeking for some validation to your experience that, hey, I'm not crazy and no, it was not a hallucination, you're, you're either going to look for groups of people 
which you may start with your church and realize, well, that's not going to do it. And then you start to look outside the church, maybe find an organization like um, Assist or IANS, you know, uh, organizations that seek to make uh, life easier for people who are trying to you know, cope with and integrate these type of spiritually transformative experiences. Uh, you will also um, may look for therapists, right? So um, there, I would say find a therapist that who is uh, knowledgeable with regards to these type of STEs, spiritually transformative experiences. Because if you, for example, said, well, this is kind of like PTSD because it's an intense experience. This intensity of the experience has redefined my sense of self. So to the extent I can generically say this is a, lot, a little bit like what PTSD, you know, what, what trauma can do to people, let me start there. But even if you find a really good PTSD therapist, if they don't recognize the validity of the experience that brought you in there, run, don't walk, especially if you are coupling that to marriage therapy. Because if you go in for marriage therapy and the therapist doesn't think you've had this experience that maybe you're hiding behind a midlife crisis and calling it this, and if your spouse is having trouble accepting the fact that you've had this spiritually transformed experience, and sometimes that it might be because in some way this experience now elevates you, and they don't like that. Um, there's going to be two sane people in the office and one crazy person. Again, run. And in my own 18 months of marriage therapy, at one point, um, I just sort of felt my near-death experience well up inside me and say the words that, well, um, our marriage vows said, till death do us part. What happens when one of us dies? No matter that we return. Our covenant is broken. And the only reason we'll stay together now is because we simply choose to. And as I've said before, that truth was not well received, but it to me seemed very true. And so there's, there, you will come to a point in, in, like I said, taking a look at your relationships, you will come to realize how solitary a path a spiritual journey can be. It does not mean it has to be lonely but it will be very much focused on a relationship you're having with the divine, however you articulate that, in which eventually words will fail. There is only so far how you can share it. And then, so, so where that took me, and, and this was a subject of a second book I, I wrote called The Practice in Between, The Art of Letting Go, that whether it's romantic chemistry or whether it's we could call it even spiritual chemistry or, you know, when you're looking around for a, maybe a new church or a new temple or a new spiritual group or a meditation practice, it's about resonance. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have heard of, you know, like how you can take two tuning forks, you know, like what they use to tune pianos or something. And if you, if you, you know, bang one, you hear it humming. Okay. If you find another one of that exact same note or frequency and you bang the first one and you just put it near it, the other one just starts vibrating on its own. How much effort was required for that? And to me, that's how it is with chemistry between people or, like I said, spiritual influences, because sometimes it's just that mysterious. You know, you'll, you, you will look at unlikely pairings out there, but some reason they work, right? Uh, so, you know, let's hold judgment. And the same thing, too. For example, um, 
one disciple, a searching disciple, went to a guru and said, you know, there's so many fake gurus out here. How do we know who the real ones are? And the guru said, you can't know. And the guy goes, well, what am I going to do? And he says, the, the next time you hear a guru talk and speak a truth, if it sounds good to you, if it sounds right, just hang out with them for a little while. Hang out with his people for a little while and just sort of see what happens with the trends of your own mind. Do you find your mind trends toward, you know, virtue or vice? You know, if, do you find yourself just easily letting go of the cares and the concerns and the whatever of the world, the dross? If so, you might just want to spend more time around that person. In other words, just take it one step at a time and let it be okay to just take it one step at a time. And I think we could apply that, apply that same philosophy to new friends we meet, new love interests we discover, new experiences we find or find us. And just, again, don't try to solve all the problems in one day. Don't try to build Rome in one day. Just start one step at a time, one brick at a time. And let's see how it goes from there. And I think when we do it this way, and again, when we realize that so much about life isn't about us personally, we're just, you know, playing our role here for the time we're here because we're really just passing through. I think in so many ways it becomes easier to uh, keep the ego out of it and to see things as they are, to see people as they are, and to present ourselves as we are in a very authentic way. Because I think that, you know, when they ask you the question, would you rather be loved or respected? And I thought, well, if you're not respected, are you ever really going to be loved? For me, it's like if you want to live a spiritual life, I think you have to first live an authentic life because in that authenticity uh, can be found humility. It can be found accepting yourself warts and all, and also therefore accepting other people warts and all. And I think it's really important to, to be aware of that. And so if you are living your life authentically, I think even an atheist can live their life spiritually because I don't think it requires, being spiritual doesn't require having a belief in God as much as it initially at least requires being honest and living in that space of authenticity and just saying, this is who I am, you know? And then here's the parts that are good and here are the parts I'm still working on. But to, to not get defensive, not get protective, because that's from the ego, right? But if you say, yeah, I am not perfect. I'm still working on it and I'm working on it. And, and, and I thank you for your assessment, but I'm going to go work on that now. I think that's all okay. And again, that's part of the letting go, letting go of so much of what people think, even letting go of our own self-judgments. Just keep walking forward. Here, we see life through the filters we want. You know, most of us, we could wake up in the morning, look in the mirror before we go out to work and we say, oh, you know, there's the most competent person or the best worker, or the most good looking person, whatever, you know. But over on the other side, we look through the filters we need. So that when we look into that mirror on the other side versus looking into the mirror here, it's more of a mirror of truth. And while I can say we see ourselves warts and all, we also see ourselves, ourselves light and all, all the incredible things we can be. And I think that once we see ourselves in that way, we see ourselves in a way that can never be unseen. But what's really cool is in seeing ourselves both in terms of our highs and our lows, when we come back, it allows us, again, with the viewpoint of relationships, 
It allows us to talk to people in terms of their highest potential. Why? Because we've learned how to turn that projector off. Remember I said seeing things as they are rather than as we just want them to be. That allows us to stop projecting on everybody our hopes and our fantasies and our fears and our prejudices and just see them as, you know, you're just another human being. You know, I don't care what your color or gender or <laughs> where you are on that journey is. You know, what do we what do we share? Maybe we share the same values. Maybe we share the same bewilderment that we're on this journey at all, right? And just just start start from some place. And the reason we can do that is the less we look at life in terms of those binary polar opposites. It's us or them. It's you or me. It's vaccinated or unvaccinated or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Democrat or Republican, whatever. We start to find more comfort in the ambiguity of the shades of gray in between those binary polar opposites. And we start to realize it's not us or them, it's us and them. And it's in those shades of gray we actually meet each other, that we learn by association, that we learn the art of compromise. And if compromise isn't the name of the game, what is? You know, we, we come to a compromise and we form society, we architect society, we form neighborhoods, we form uh, relationships because we we learn all about the art of give and take and at the end of the day it may not be so much um have i found my perfect mate but have i found someone whose demons play nicely with mine so it's a good way to put it so there you go so those are some of the aspects on relationships that have I wouldn't say I brought them all back. I would say they emerge over time, kind of like unwrapping a present or peeling an onion one layer at a time every day. It, again, it's just all about doing it. It's just about taking a breath and continuing to walk forward. So you talked about the after effects, but also about some really strange synchronicities that occurred. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I always had a really, it's like I had a really good memory or something, uh, but it wasn't like I had a, an eidetic memory, like, you know, you see on television shows or something like that, but it seemed like I, I had a, a better memory than most people. And it would just be so weird to say, go in on a, a business meeting and on the first day and people are bandying things around, talking about things, you know, sometimes they're making promises that, you know, won't make it to a contract, but you still remember them. And then when the deal is over, maybe two years later, and you're having the wrap up meeting, it's really weird when you bring up so many of those things that were spoken about that first meeting and nobody remembers them, even your own side who would have benefited from remembering them. And after a while, it just makes you feel a little bit like a ghost, you know, to remember things that no one knows, to be sentimental to a deep degree with the smallest things that are significant. And again, no one knows, no one remembers. And you know, it kind of pushes that solitary path a bit. And, and I realize, you know, I, I live in my head a lot, you know, <laughs> where, where, I, where these things do still have meaning, uh, at least to me. But I think one of the things I wanted to share was um, the synchronicity. Uh, remember I said, you know, I was going through a divorce myself, like 70 something percent of us do who have NDEs. Uh, one day, uh, it was about this time, maybe a couple of years ago in the spring, uh, my wife had left 
So coming into the spring, you know how you want to say, okay, I want to decorate the house or do something, you know, buy some plants, you know, celebrate not being in this cold Connecticut winter inside now. So one of the things I noticed, some of the window screens at my home needed repair. So I called a local window company. They sent someone out to look at it. And uh, so he took the screens back to his shop to repair them. And his wife called me on a Thursday to say, your screens are all ready. And I said, okay, great. I'll be over on Friday. <clears throat> and on that next day, that Friday, I got there around 4.30. And uh, when I walked in, I could see she had my invoice in her hand, but she was on the phone. So her husband, the man who came out, he turned around. We were just talking and shooting the breeze. <laughs> I have no idea why, but this does happen. Uh, somewhere in here, I started talking about my near-death experience. Can't tell you why. But as I did, um, I, now I look over and she's off the phone. And she's listening to me like a hawk looks at a mouse. She was really intent on listening. And at this point, I usually like to give people an out. Say, yeah, I know this sounds crazy. And then she was like, no, 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 we want to know. We know. I was like, okay, fine. So I kept talking. And <clears throat> what's interesting is she asked, after this experience, were you more intuitive than you were before? So she's on the right track, right? And I said, that's a great question. I said, you know, it's, it's not so much like, you know, like some people. It's not so much like I have a psychic ability to, you know, foretell the future or talk to deceased loved ones or anything like that. I said, it's really more, again, kind of quoting back from the in-between, I said, it's really more about relationships and really weird timing, which is obviously what a synchronicity is <clears throat> at that very moment. Their daughter walked in. It's five o'clock now. So their daughter was off work. She walked in. I looked at her and she looked at me and she said, I remember you. And I looked at the parents. I looked back at her. I said, yeah. She goes, yeah, I'm an emergency room upper thoracic nurse. And I remember when you came in from a plane crash. Now, think about how differently I looked standing at her parents' window shop versus laying on a gurney with blood all over the place. I'm, I, could, I don't think anybody on a good day could be expected to make that match. Plus the fact that it was like, you know, three years prior. And how many other people had she seen? So I looked at the mom and I said, that's the answer to your question, relationships and timing. And I said, think about this for a split second. I said, imagine I had answered your question. Yeah, I'm more intuitive. In five minutes, your daughter's going to walk in here and we're going to remember each other from the emergency room. And then it happened. I would have proven my point. But in a strange way, I would have kind of owned that moment. But right now, we all know a moment just happened and no one can own it because we all own this moment. This was magic. I said, that tells you something about the source from where it comes. And <laughs> I don't think anybody could speak for a second. We were all just in stunned silence knowing <laughs> that, I mean, this was an answer to the question. This was really driving home the point. And think about it, if I hadn't said a word about near-death experiences before that, and it still happened, it would have just been, oh, an unusual, hey, great to see you. Thanks for saving my life kind of thing, right? But because it was prefaced by talking about this mystical experience and then <laughs> capstoned with this mystical occurrence that involved other people, it really made it cool. And these are the kinds of things that happen an awful lot. Another, you mentioned After Effects, if I can, you know, typical to many people who've had near-death experience have been the electronic anomalies, you know, like blowing up computers, light bulbs, 
uh, I blew up my whole HVAC system at my house and, you know, new furnace, new central air was required. My son saw me, literally saw me while we were talking about the in-between, saw me blow up the microwave. Um, Siri is always going off. I shut it down for today so that she wouldn't do this in the background. Um, it is, it, and even now it's nonstop. You, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, cash registers go down. Uh, they just went down last night when we went out to eat. It, it's just insane. It's nonstop. And, and you know, the big question is how, why, whatever, I don't know. Do we have this mysterious bioelectric field and it just kind of flares up and stuff after maybe a higher, higher frequency injection, if you will, for want of a better word from a near death experience. I don't know, but I would like to think that in some way it's measurable other than just doing MRI scans on people, I don't know, who've had a near-death experience and they're trying to meditate and get back to that space. I have no idea. But it, it certainly keeps life interesting, I'll say that. In fact, I'm talking to you now on a new computer because two weeks ago I blew up two laptops and I blew up my internet at the house. I did. And uh, yeah, and it gets expensive after a while, to be honest. That's extraordinary. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I wanted to mention about your new focus on NDE integration that emphasizes um, the, like relationships after a near-death experience, because most people, they want to discuss what it's like to be on the other side. They want to discuss the metaphysical after effects, but the other major after effect is the high divorce rate. Well, it's perfect that you're bringing that point up because like I said, in, in, at first you just see a statistic like, okay, basically indie ears are having a 50% higher rate of divorce than normal people. And I had talked to Ians about that. I said, you know, if I was an organization created for a certain population and three quarters of them were having what might be the other than a parent child, the most important relationship they could have in their lives blow up. I think I'd talk about it. So as you can imagine, once you've had a near-death experience in one way or another, the rest of your life is an integration exercise. How do I incorporate this into my life? And like you said before, is what was true yesterday still true today? And you ask that every day because you are changing every day and you can see the changes. You're not reacting to things the same. Things that attract you are changing. Things that repulse you are changing. Maybe you don't feel any repulsion at all. Maybe you don't feel much at all because you're becoming more empty. And the vessel, as it becomes more empty, is becoming, well, let's face it, more pure and able to carry something that is still yet to come. So it's just all kinds of changes. But my focus certainly has been on that integration phase. And because it does... And from a relationship point of view. So I've thought about, you know, again, what's the best model for integration? And as I said before, you know, is it, is it uh, finding a, a therapy that can easily adapt? But if so, you need a therapist who's also going to be NDE friendly, let's call it. Or is there a model that's something almost like Alcoholics Anonymous, where help comes from within the community? And... I would say this, if, if you've had an NDE and that's uh, basically, you know, busting up your marriage <laughs> or causing troubles in your marriage, well, let's say you went to a, a meeting of other NDE people. And I know that IANS has formed some uh, interesting small intimate groups called ISCO, and I can't remember what that stands for, but they they do address these kinds of questions now. And so does a, a, a organization called ACIST, A-C-I-S-T-E. They're very focused on integration issues. So the idea there is that 
let's say we were sitting in a circle. Maybe I'm there, let's just say a number, 40 people. Right? And I'm talking about, yeah, my marriage is having a lot of trouble right now. Well, the idea is that basically 73% of the people sitting in that circle will say, we know what you're going through and here's how we dealt with it or here's what occurred to us through that process. They will say helpful things for me in terms of dealing with perhaps the disintegration of my marriage. But let's also think about this. 27% are going to be able to sit there and say, here's how we held it together. Now, what do you think might be a common thread for them? I'm going to bet you good, honest, sincere, authentic communication and obviously acceptance, you know, and, and there. And for the person who, you know, didn't have the experience, they may be the ones to say, well, you know, you're not perfect now. I say, well, you know, you don't have to be perfect to have a perfecting experience. You don't have to be perfect to have your feet pointed in the right direction. <laughs> I mean, nobody's saying anybody's perfect. And yet so many times those, that will be the kind of reaction you get from people. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything that maybe we didn't cover today? I think you've done a great job of asking exactly the right questions. Um, I, I mean, like surgical skill, Tanya, it's great. Um, no, I, th I think the main thing is just, um, I, I would say this, I would say this. You know, it seems like we've had a lot of uncertainty in our world the past couple of years between COVID and, and at least in America, and maybe in terms of how it affects the rest of the world, our politics at home, and then our social justice issues, which I have seen carry across international borders, you know, with how we are dealing with our own border control from the South, and of course, all the business going on over in the Ukraine with Russia. And that would, may date this podcast, but it certainly says these were the issues of the day. And as we deal with all this uncertainty and ambiguity, it's interesting how the push toward those the push for security, the push for resolution that drives people toward those binary polar opposites of us or them, black or white, win or lose, doesn't always seem to bring out the best in people. But like I said, changing that one word from us or them to us and them can really change everything. And we are all in this together. And hopefully we'll just keep pushing in that direction of, uh, of thinking that way and of living that way. Because my personal belief is that with the current statistic, assumed statistic, that maybe 10% of the world has had a near-death experience. You know, that's like 7,860,000 people. If you take that number, 10% of the world's population, that's half the population of China. That's the population of the United States, Russia, and most of Europe a hell of a lot of people to have essentially touched the face of God. So I've thought, you know, in, in to use the Bible as a reference in Luke 12, I think it's 21. It says, you know, many, many will be the people who say here is the kingdom of God, or there is the kingdom of God. So it's not a here or there thing. The kingdom of God is within you. So it's made me wonder, is this the second coming? It would be no, less a paradigm bust than the first coming in the way it happened, you know? <laughs> so 
it's worth thinking. And again, in terms of taking it out of the house and saying, let me talk to people in terms of their highest potential. Let me call that out of them. The word educate means to draw forth because the word was conceived at a time when teachers didn't think they were putting knowledge in your head. They thought, I'm here to remind you of what you already know. All truth and all beauty already exist within you. I'm just here to kind of say, wake up, remember. And the inherent respect that brings to relationships. Can you imagine waking up in a world like that where you walk out the door and if you don't know how to do something, people don't talk to you like you're stupid. They talk to you like, you know this. Here, let me help you remember. How much better a way is that? And we can choose to live that way right now, starting right this minute. The next person we meet today, the next person we wake up to tomorrow, we can talk to them that way. And just the nuance of that, the voice inflection, the body language, even how we pause between words or sentences, imbued with that spirit, you may well be the first person who's ever believed in them. And that can be life-changing. I'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Jim Bruton. For more on Jim and to buy his book, please visit inbetweenproductions.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And make sure to check out wellnesscontinuing.com for spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. And be sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.